Welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Castles, PhD. For years, we have assumed that babies were incapable of complex empathy. We thought they could just react to others' distress through emotion contagion, like when babies start crying at the sound of another baby crying, and that that was really it. Well, it turns out we were wrong. This week, we explore the empathic life of infants through the amazing work of Dr. Mayan Davidov, who's been showing the world exactly how capable of empathy infants really are. Join us as we talk about these discoveries and what it means for us as parents to these amazing creatures. Let's dive in. I am so excited to have with me today Dr. Mayan Davidov. She is a professor at the School of Social Work and Social Welfare at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem after getting her PhD in developmental psychology at the University of Toronto. She currently serves as their head of the doctoral program, and she runs the Social and Emotional Development Lab, where her research focuses on parent-child relations and children's socioeconomic emotional, I always want to say socioeconomic, but it's not, social emotional <laughs> development. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here, Mayan. Thank you for having me, Tracy. <laughs> I kind of want to add too that Mayan's work was my first foray into psychological research. So the very first study I ever worked on at the University of Toronto was your doctoral work, wasn't it? It was your doctoral dissertation. Uh, yeah, you also worked on other, you worked on everything, right? <laughs> but, uh, my but I PhD think the, as well. Yeah, I think yeah. that was the first one. So that was my entrance. Yeah. So thank you, because I think yeah, that was the beginning of why we're here now. So, <laughs> so we're going to talk a lot today about your work on empathy development in particular, because that's such a big topic for parents to understand, to... Yeah. You know, that they worry about, too. That's something that comes up is, when should my child be showing this? What is going on? Um, but before we get there, how did you become interested in this? So what triggered this interest in social-emotional development, and in particular, empathy development? Yeah. Uh, I think I've always been interested in, you know, understanding why people behave the way they do. Like, looking back, I can see why I became a psychologist. And uh, just trying to figure out uh, why people, you know, behave the way they do and why some people are this way and other people are different. So I think it was a really kind of, it took me a while to realize that's what I actually want to study or do is to study that. But I've always been interested in social behavior and also development. So how children, you know, develop to be, to become, you know, different. Who they people. are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> So it was kind of a natural thing. And I, in terms of early empathy, that actually was kind of not expected because I've always been, so for my PhD, for example, I looked at empathy in children and school children as well. But um, looking at that early on actually happened when I did, I finished my PhD at the U of T and I returned to Israel and I did a postdoc there and I met a fellow uh, postdoc uh, Doctoral, doctoral student, and she kind of gotten got me into it because uh, her PhD was on that, and she I I've gotten yeah so I got involved in in with together with her and we've we've been collaborating ever since and uh, yeah so a lot of what I do now has to do with that but I, I actually see myself more as a, a researcher of parenting this is my yeah. name yeah. Well, and that was your PhD, right? Because you were in Joan Grusick's yeah. lab, who has been like parenting galore. And yeah. so it comes in. And, and I don't think we can look at something like empathy, 
without looking at parenting. You can't say, you know, a child's development is independent of the environment that they happen to be in. Very true. We also have some data on that, which I haven't, you don't know about. So I can tell you a little bit about that. Oh, yes. Okay. (laughs) We will get to that. Perfect. That's awesome. So, um, you know, most people, and I want to get in before we get to the research, I think we have to define some constructs here for people because I know from speaking to people, a lot seem to view empathy as just this one thing. There's just empathy. And yet, obviously, as you know, because you do this, and as I have had the privilege of of working on your stuff and reading up and doing other work myself on, on empathy later, but it's not a unitary construct. There are different layers, different components, different ways in which we look at it. Can you give everyone a bit of a rundown of this so that there's a good understanding of what we're talking about when we talk about these different pieces, I guess, to empathy, to the empathy puzzle. Right. So actually, there are many definitions in the literature. And uh, I even I won't cover all of them, because I'll just focus on the ones that we need to understand the work that I'll present. But they're very nice uh, papers on actually the different definitions. And I can I can send you. (laughs) But uh, basically, uh, when we're talking about empathy, we're talking it's a vicarious social emotional response because what the, the basis is that we're responding to something that we see or th- or are exposed to in another person so that's the key of it is that it's it's a re- it's a response that the person has to being exposed to the situation or emotion of another person and that response has different components so we think most often i think about the emotional component uh, so, and that emotional component is essentially feeling something that is similar to what the other person is feeling. And this is a pretty amazing thing, if we think about it, that our species, and not just our species, has this capacity to just immediately, on some level, understand what another person is going through. It's it's pretty amazing. It's probably very, very important to being, you know, we're social beings and it's a very, it's a key ability uh, to be able to get along with others, uh, to have that. So essentially uh, emotional or affective empathy is feeling something or being empathically aroused is feeling something that is similar to what the other is feeling. And then once we have that, we can go into different, Roots. So basically, <laughs> most of the uh, most of the, the research has been on empathy for others in distress. And really, when you look at the literature, it's like ninety nine percent is on that. So when another person is distressed, if you think about it, I mean, we we usually think empathy is a great thing. But when we think about it, yeah, it's great, but it's not a pleasant thing. It's not an enjoyable thing. It's it's uncomfortable, right? When another person is feeling distressed, we have also a, we have a, a feeling of discomfort. That's empathic arousal because we become you know, emotionally aroused and we feel uncomfortable or we feel for them. We, and then um, it can go to different routes. So the, 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 empathic, the most empathic one uh, empathic is, is to feel empathic concern, is to feel for the person, to want that person to feel better. 
And when we feel that, and this is called in the literature different words, so it's called sympathy, it's called empathic concern, and I think this is what people think about when they think about empathy in everyday mm-hmm. speech. This is so, but when we think about it, it's pretty amazing because you have a stake in the other's welfare. When you feel that, you need the other to feel better. For them and then when they feel better you're relieved you feel you know it's, there's an alleviation of that just of that discomfort so yeah. this is empathic concern but it could also take a different route so for example when somebody is distressed and i feel emotionally aroused as a, as a result i can also become too emotionally uh aroused and then i become it becomes more about myself so i feel anxious i feel you know, repulsed by their, or you can be repulsed, you can be anxious, you can be, I don't know, different things. But basically the point is it becomes about me. So I now need to be <laughs> helped with because I feel too. So this is also, it's empathic in a way because it all begun with the other's situation, but it's it's a, it's not an other-oriented response. It's a self oriented response. So there are really different kinds of way we can respond to others' emotions. So this is the emotional kind of what we see as emotional empathy. And then there are also cognitive aspects. So for example, uh, cognitive empathy is a term that we use to describe understanding what another person is going through. So understanding their situation and their emotion. And it doesn't mean that I also necessarily sympathize or feel for them, although it often goes together, but it doesn't have to, right? We can understand and not feel, not be moved by their situation, or we can be moved by another situation without understanding too much. We need to understand a little bit. We need to understand that something's wrong, Uh, but it can be pretty basic. And then uh, these components also can come with a behavioral component, which we usually refer to as pro-social behavior or helping. And this is when we actually, we take action to do something to try to alleviate the other's concern or uh, the other situation or negative situation. Uh, this can come, this can be helping, comforting. There are different kinds of things that we can try to do to to help. So I guess kind of it's broken down. I don't know if it made it any simpler for people, but yeah, no. emotional, emotional, cognitive, and uh, behavioral. Yeah, and I think it's really. I do think most people actually go straight to the pro-social behavior of it that they see because yeah. that's the active. That's, right. that's the act that we see. So there's so much that's, assumption yeah. that if my child behaves, but I think it's important just to highlight right now, and you'll talk about it in yours, but that behavioral piece doesn't always come. And there's a lot of different reasons. Right. You can have even that empathic concern and right. still not act due to a variety of, of developmental right. circumstances. Everything. Right. And that's a really great point because for example, when we look at very young infants, they can't yet do pro-social behavior. Pro-social behavior is hard because you need to formulate a goal-directed behavior. You need to actually enact it. So it's it takes it's more taxing cognitively, and and it takes you know you need to be 
have some motor abilities and you need and also affected by temperament whether or not the child would do it you know if they're shy maybe they won't approach a stranger or whatever uh different situations so it really i think this is a great point that we need to separate so uh empathic concern is is seen as it's a strong motivation for pro-social behavior because like i said before you have a stake in the other's welfare but it, it's not the same as pro-social behavior it can either give rise to it or not depending on many things but it's not it's not the same so yeah and even pro-social behavior i always go back to alison gopnik's story about her son which i'm sure you've heard too she shared it about the day she had the really bad day and he came up and she was crying on the sofa and he went upstairs and came back down with all the band-aids and just started putting band-aids all over her trying to find it so pro-social behavior isn't always helpful either in the sense that right. we can see kids acting and so we always have to think too about what are they trying to do versus right. what they're actually accomplishing there so yeah. <laughs> all right so basically we want to get down into this early empathy development which has been the crux right. of your work and i think most of us that are listening most people have an interest in psychology and interest in the research and the standard view has been of empathy development that Babies show what they show is simply that um, emotion contagion, which is what we all talk about. That's Hoffman's work about one baby cries, another baby cries in response. But that's all there is to their empathy development until they get older, that until they have this self self other distinction, they're not able to engage that affective empathy system or cognitive empathy system. And as you said, they, they really often aren't activating the pro-social behavior anyway, partly because of the limitations of their babies and, you know, they can't feed themselves. So therefore there's going to yeah. be, you know, or walk or dress themselves. So going above and beyond, we might just put that on hold there for a little minute there. But um, what, so you challenged this. This has been yeah. your work is basically taking the view that I think everyone has, and you've kind of just been like, no, no, that's not it. So, <laughs> what, so what first led you to check? Because this right. has been a mainstay view for so many years. So yeah. what drove you to challenge this? What was what did you notice that made you say no? And can okay. you tell people what is your theory around emotional development? And then we can get to the research that that talks to right. that theory. Right. So actually, it goes back to what I was discussing before about the, my postdoctoral student uh, in Israel whom I met, and her PhD was on that topic. So essentially, she bought into the theory. It was a really widely accept accepted theory, Hoffman's uh, theory of uh, the stages of empathy development and what she wanted. So the theory suggests, by the way, we should give credit where credit's due, is that before Hoffman, there was an even stricter view of empathy development. So, for example, if we think about Piagetan thinking or in Freudian, it's only during school years, the early school years, that they assume that really a child is able to feel a concern for another because before them they're too egotistic, they're too, you know, uh, focused on their their own needs, etc. So, really, Hoffman kind of took it to be earlier. And he suggested that during the second year we can try to we can start to see other-oriented empathy, but not before. 
and this is kind of so the before is so what we're we're just amending one part of it okay we should be more uh, <laughs> precise but 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 you're right that it's a big change for people and i'll tell you later how hard it's been to kind of get that in there it's not easy to uh <laughs> to to change uh yeah theories Mine. that are that appear in textbooks let's just put it that way <laughs> so basically my friend uh, when she did so it's ranita rothananya is her name and when she did her phd uh she wanted to she really was she loved the theory and she wanted to follow the infant so essentially hoffman says there's no other oriented empathy during the first year and then it appears in the second year so she wanted to see it emerge she wanted to follow these infants and see it emerge but what so she started at eight months. It's data that she collected, and then it's, I also am an author on this paper because I became became involved in it. And she we fought she the data follows infants from from eight months to sixteen months, and she wanted to see a before and after situation. But it wasn't like that. So they responded with empathy from the get go. Essentially, is what we see, and we see in that that study that uh, the. Empathy, empathic concern increases a little, but very, very little. Like there's very gradual. It's not an, and there's, it's not there, and it emerges. It's just not the story. <laughs> so the theory is very compelling, and I'll kind of explain why. But it just doesn't seem to work that way. <laughs> the theory suggests that um, infants have that ability to be moved by others. Um, so it's that. So that's an. It's an empathic capacity, but but. What Hoffman argued is that before, during the first year, they can't differentiate self and other, and so they can't feel for the other because essentially they get confused. If they feel distressed because of the other, they think it's for the self, and then they become self-distressed. So it's not an other-oriented response. So it it was it sounded like an appealing theory for a lot of people that you have that cognitive component, the motivation, and only when they both kind of combine then you get the other oriented empathy. But it just, just doesn't seem to work that way. And I'll explain why, <laughs> what we've kind of figured out is that, uh, first of all, there's the, the theory of stages of the first year, there's no other oriented empathy, et cetera. It, it's based on notions of, of cognitive development that are no longer held. It's mainly Piagetan thinking. It's And we know Piaget was a genius, but he really underestimated the capacities, the abilities of infants and young children. And this is the case here too, right? It's essentially the same ideas that they can do more, they understand more than we think, and they can feel more than, than we think. So uh, the, the notion that they don't differentiate self and other uh, is incorrect. And I really try to, it's so entrenched, like you talk to people and they really believe it. And it's really the data doesn't show that. So what they can't yet do is that they don't know consciously to separate self and other. They don't, they can't see themselves and say, this is me, okay? They, they're young, okay, they can't do that yet. But we do see in other ways, more implicitly, implicit ways that they do differentiate self and other. So for example, so this is from not from my own work, you know, this is from other people's work, but when you, you know, the rooting reflex, right? When you touch an infant on the cheek and they move their head to that direction. So infants sometimes touch their own cheek. And when they do this, they don't respond in the same way as if another person touched their cheeks. They know, they know, you know, and when you think about it, when I touch myself, 
in the cheek or somebody else does it, it doesn't feel the same way, right? Because when I touch my own cheek, I feel it in my hand as well. And so it's, so we, there's a, there are sensory motor abilities, capacities, and um, to differentiate self from other from very early on. And even in utero, there's like very interesting studies on twins in utero and how they touch the other twin or the self. And it's, it's very, very interesting. So basically this ability and, and when you think about it, it makes sense. Why would they think, I mean, I don't know why they should think that, <laughs> that they're the same as the mother, you know? It's pretty obvious that sometimes I want something and the mother gives it to me or she doesn't. And it's not, I, I, I think it's, I, I, I actually don't understand this. Yeah, this notion that I'm the same as the mother. I because think there's frustration, right? So I don't know. I think it goes to that cognitive capacity, right? When I, I yeah. think it goes to theory of mind because we seem to think that if we have, you know, we don't see theory of mind, we see early some precursors as has been going earlier too. It used yeah. to be that no one had it till like age five. Now we're like, well, yeah. we're starting to see earlier signs of it. But I honestly think it goes to this idea that if we can't see someone else's mind, they must not see someone else's body. And Maybe. the fact is, is that I think they can be very distinct. I may not be able to understand that other people think differently than me because mm. that's not something I can visibly see, right? I don't see what's going on yeah. in your head, but I certainly can see that I can feel the touch, as you pointed out, that's yeah. slightly different from my own. So I think it's this lack of, of differentiating a physical yeah. separation from a mental separation. That's just my thought. Right. Maybe. <laughs> I mean, it could also, I think it's deeper because, you know, if you look at object relations theory, it's also common thought that I'm the same. And it's just, I think, again, it's not giving credit to infants that they have their own sensations. And even if they can't articulate it yet or you can't see it yet uh, in how they can't express their thinking directly. But if you look very carefully, you can see differences. And I can give you another uh, example from a really cool study done in Italy where infants, newborns, were exposed to either their own cry pre-recorded or the cry of another infant, and they did not respond the same, okay? They respond much more, they were much more aroused for the others when they heard the other uh, infant cry than their own. So, the, you know, they can distinguish, I know it's pretty amazing and they did it twice. It's a really good study by Dondi et al. And it's, you know, so we really need to give more credit. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> so they That is so cool. You know, yeah. So it's not that they don't differentiate self and other, they can differentiate self and other. What the, where the problem is, is that in, in Hoffman's theory, they only took as evidence self-other differentiation when it was explicit self-knowledge. And this is something that we see in the second year of life, where, for example, infants, they see themselves in the mirror and they know it's them so they can point and say their name or, or for example, you know, the rouge test or the spot in the nose where you put, you put a, a bit of rouge on the infant's nose or forehead without them knowing, and then you put them in front of the mirror. And if they, you know, whether or if they, understand that the other person the person in the mirror is them they would touch their own face rather than the mirror but this is a very difficult task actually and um and and yeah infants do it during the second year of life but it doesn't mean that they don't differentiate self another earlier it's just that they show it in, in 
yeah, it's more implicit and they show it in different ways. So this is our view is that they can do this from very early on based on the, you know, the, the other people's work who've done such amazing work with, with newborns and infants showing that. And then um, what we think is that the motivation, that concern for other is just essentially another manifestation of us being social beings. And we accept very easily that infants can share others' positive emotion and they you can have an exchange, although I can talk a little bit about that later, but you can have exchanges of positive affect, you know, the cooing, we see it at around kind of eight, six to eight weeks where there's social smiling and cooing and we can see children participating in that. But what we're saying is that, yeah, but they can also share in somebody else's sorrow or, you know, distress by showing concern. And But this is really, it came from the empirical work. So really in this case, thinking kind of you're making me uh, <laughs> reflect on it. I think that it really are, Alternative theory came also kind of hand in hand with the empirical work that we did and what we saw. And yeah, it was kind of like a combined uh, process. I love it. (laughs) And I know we're going to talk about it, but the other piece to this that I think plays in in all of this, because you said about the positive emotion versus negative is regulation. And that's good to me. We'll get to that right, though. So right. I should just say that, for example, that study where we essentially took our, my uh, colleague's uh, data and we published her PhD data and it was very, very difficult to publish it. And it was rejected from a lot of places because it was very difficult for people to to accept it. And, and we really, I think, kind of managed to get it in there once uh, a very important person in that area, Carolyn Zen Waxler, who published a lot of work on uh, empathy. She's a, an amazing uh, pr- researcher and mentor, and she published so much on empathy during the second year onward. And when she kind of gotten it, together with us and she was really open to it and got together with our team, then we were, it was easier. It became, also, she proved the work, the conceptualization, of course, but it was just became easier for people to even consider that it could happen, that, that this was it. So she's, you know, uh, a real mentor in that respect. It It is amazing to me yeah. with research how just preconceived notions that other people have. I mean, the peer yeah. review process has its benefits and everything, but the downfall yeah. is when you're trying to change minds, it's very hard. You know, you're countering something. You can just be rejected. It's all reviewer two, isn't it? It's always reviewer two that comes in with all their <laughs> nitpicky problems and whatnot. Um, yeah, it takes time. It takes time for people to accept. But I think it's, you know, I, we can really see it, uh, see people coming around. And uh, I think a lot of people, now that we've also published, we'll get to it, but the a big, like bigger studies on this, uh, people are kind of getting around to it. But just to kind of in a nutshell, what we think is happening rather than the child not, you know, we think that the child separates self and other from early on and that they have that capacity to care. Now, whether or not, and we can see that in how they respond, their facial expressions and their, you know, their um, vocalizations, their gestures, we can see it when we observe them, but we need to look very carefully and we need to have the right balance in terms of the stimulus. So we can talk about that. Uh, And whether or not they show it, it depends on, like you said, whether they're able to regulate themselves because you do need to be 
you you need a very balanced uh, level of arousal for everybody, not just for a baby, but for everybody. In order to feel concerned, to feel empathic for another person, we need to have a balanced uh, level of arousal. Uh, do you want me to get to that now? I kind of jumped in. But. No, you did. And I will. I just want to bring it back to what you said when you talked about the differentiation of affective empathy from that personal distress to yeah. empathic yeah. concern is really a difference of arousal of, yeah. you know, when that arousal is too high, yeah. it becomes self-focused, which is what we always thought infants were exactly. doing was becoming self-focused by it versus this ability to be other focused. And as we know, Infants don't have the greatest regulatory capacity because right. they're babies. So we don't expect huge things. But in so many ways, if the studies are set above what they're capable of, they're not going to be able to meet it no matter what. So it's exactly. it's coming up to this. So exactly. you have a couple recent papers on this and you've looked at um, this new hypothesis. So let's talk about the first one, which is this trajectory of empathy starting at three months of age through 18 yeah. months of age. So right. forget eight months, you're going down to like the yeah. end of that fourth <laughs> trimester here. Um, tell us about the study. What did you do? What did you find? What does this mean? <laughs> What's going on here? You're telling me my three month old is experiencing this. Is They can, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, you go to it. Okay, so this is really kind of once we were able to raise, like to get a big grant to study this, you know, very properly, then we essentially collected this large longitudinal study. So we have uh, 165 infants and we followed them from three months to actually 36 months, but it's not in that paper. <laughs> uh, and we we visited them at home at three months and six months and nine months and 12. So we visited them and at each visit, we essentially, I, we haven't talked yet about how we measure these things really. So we, we so the way we do it is we present infants with a stimulus of of, a, of distress other so in our case it was three stimuli of every home visit and then we film how the infant is responding and then we code um, the response for for relevant uh, dimensions so the stimuli that we're using are uh, simulations so the mother and the experimenter simulate that they got a little, um, they banged their knee or they banged their finger and they're simulating distress. And then we, this is for just a minute and then we see how the infant is responding. So you kind of, when you, if you wanna see this behavior from infants, you have to find the sweet spot where the, the, the stimulus is clear enough, it's long enough, but it's not too long and it's not too, too extreme, too intense which is uh, gets a little bit to what you, you said before. So, because if we do, if it's too complicated or too brief, like 10 seconds or very mild, maybe they won't even understand something is going on. You know, it's they're very, very little. So they, it needs to be clear. But if it's too long, then they become overly aroused and they become dysregulated. Or if it's, you know, terrible screams and so they yeah they'll start crying because there's nothing else they can do they can't regulate so you really have to be 
very particular in, in the stimulus. And I think that's something that wasn't done before because, it's, for example, in all the studies that showed, or most of the studies that showed um, empathic, essentially that all infants can, that infants become, they cry when others cry. These studies uh, were, were taken as evidence that they, that's all they do. They really, you know what they did? They let infants hear uh, other infants cry for three to six minutes. So this is I'm going to start crying at that point. Exactly. Exactly. Everybody would. So it's too long. And also there's oftentimes it was just the audio. So also it's hard to know. There's no nowhere you can focus your attention. How can you show concern in this situation? It really wasn't designed to see it because they didn't think it existed. So (laughs) this is kind of like, yeah, it's a cycle. So, and and you know what? Something very interesting. When I looked at all these studies, earlier studies, I saw that the infants typically, they didn't start crying right away. They only start crying at about after a minute and a half. So this, to me, reinforced the notion that they, yeah, once they become dysregulated is when they show the crying. And if we want to see something other than crying, we need to be, you know, better in how we design the stimuli. So essentially what we do is we do these simulations and also we show them a video of another infant crying for a minute. And we film their response and then we code and we code it very carefully. And we also do, you know, Reliability uh, coding. Yeah, reliability yeah. code, which we know you know so much about. <laughs> uh, I've done a lot yeah. of that. <laughs> exactly, integrator reliability, and so we really were able to show that first of all, we can those behaviors occur. So essentially, we see that you know they're modest. It's not that they show a huge amount of concern, but you can see in the facial expression. So, for example, facial expression facial expressions of sadness or of uh, sympathy face, you know, with the eyebrows kind of bunched together and you can see how much they focus their attention on the other and how much they try to explore to understand what is going on. This is considered a more cognitive aspect. I don't know that it's all that cognitive. It's very motivational too, but trying to understand what is going on. Uh, so the effective is their facial expressions, et cetera, and um, the more cognitive response is exploration or inquisitive behavior. Um, And sometimes they also do other things. Sometimes they become dysregulated and they cry, but that's pretty rare. So it's only about, give or take, like 10% of the time they kind of show that. Uh, But usually they they're not, they're not, they don't ignore it. They're not oblivious to the response. So you should, you see a response and you see, you know, sometimes very briefly, but you definitely see moments that they show concern for the other and and the affect that they show and the exploration, et cetera. And this is a very common behavior already at three months. And then it does increase with age, but gradually um, is kind of, to put it more, most simply, uh, is what we see. So we see that it starts very, very early. And they do this behavior more than if, for example, they see a neutral response, um, stimulus, they don't show it, you know, as much. So, so yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, so this is- I have is, a quick uh, question the, on that. Yeah. Is there, because you have three different types of stimuli, so you have a, a researcher who the child ostensibly doesn't really know you have a baby who they ostensibly don't really know but then you have their mother 
yeah. who they know. <laughs> yeah. Is there a difference amongst okay. their reaction based on who they are okay. seeing in distress? So that's a great question. So, so first of all, I should say that all these responses, they converge together. So we see a similarity in how the same infant responds to the three. So we see some level of consistency within the, the child over a situation. So that's really interesting. Uh, in terms of the strength, we actually don't see much of a difference in their empathic concern or their exploration. Uh, but there's a bit of a difficulty here because the experimenter does the simulation way better than the mother. You know, they're pros, they can cry and cue very easily. And the mother, <laughs> So it's very hard to compare, okay. but uh, but I should say that at the very early ages we don't see prosocial behavior and we don't expect to see. But towards you know the second year we do see prosocial behavior and that we do see much more towards the mother okay. than the experimenters. So we do see a difference, you know. It's uh, but not not in the emotional response though. So that's pretty amazing because I think some people think that yeah when the infant responds with concern maybe it's because they're concern for the mother, you know, maybe it's still a self-involved kind of thing, but no, not really, because they do the same response to the experimenter and to the baby. So uh, it gives us a level of confidence that this is really empathy that we're looking at. Yet. That's amazing. Yeah. By the way, with that paper, you know, the longitudinal study, we also have a video if you want to refer uh, the listeners. Oh. And it's pretty amazing. Yeah, it gives it like we've uh this the mother of this young girl allowed us to share and you can kind of see what it looks like for a baby she's high obviously we picked a good example but it, but you can really see in her face in a way it's there's something so pure about it when they're very very young so you can really see the emotion and yeah so uh, oh i will include that link in the show notes so that yeah, when people come yeah. you'll be able to see all of these studies will be linked my aunt lab will be linked but also i i'm going to get that video and that one will be linked so that you can see what does that yeah. look like in a three-month-old so yeah and and what's nice when you look at it is that you can see that she can do more things as she gets older she can you know then at the later point she puts her hand on the mother and she she speaks but even earlier on when she couldn't do all these things you could still see the affect and the affect is there that's so cool <laughs> it's just i mean it's it's amazing because again and it reinforces what we've talked about already, which is how much more babies are able to do than we ever give them credit for. Exactly. It's this idea of them as the blank slate or, you know what I mean? All these ideas just are so old fashioned, yeah. if I may exactly. say that, just to be polite about it. Um, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> one of the things you saw in, in this one was also that I, I want to talk about was this smiling. Yeah, behavior yeah. that you talked about because there was a lot of smiling behavior and yeah. I know it, it elicited for me for this reason is I have actually had parents talk to me out of concern being like is my kid a psychopath because like I'll be upset and my kid's yeah. smiling at me and there's real concern about yeah. that seemingly positive behavior in response to someone else's distress but you don't take it that way you have a no. very different explanation for it. <laughs> yeah, so this is not something we expected because like you said, when you look at the literature, you don't really see a lot of um, attention to this behavior, even with, you know, with uh, toddlers or it. And, and when people address it, it's more like as a negative thing, like being happy when someone is, yeah, taking pleasure in somebody else's misery. So it's a really negative 
uh, thing. Uh, but what we saw is that it's so common in, you know, during the first year that the majority of infants showed it at least once uh, at each age. And when we kind of took a closer look at it, so sometimes these smiles, they seem to be, you know, that they're um, kind of, I don't know if I'm not embarrassed, but they feel kind of, they they don't know what's going on initially. But but a lot of the smiles, it seems like they're communicative in nature. So they would look at the, the victim and then they smile, wait to see a response, try to make eye contact, which I didn't mention, but when we do the simulations, there's no eye contact. It's very important because we're not trying to invite a response. It's really about sharing, participating in somebody else's situation without them inviting you in any way. So the infants often would try to make eye contact, smile, and then the other person is not responding, and then they they sober again, and then they try again. So they really seem to be looks like they're trying to initiate a positive cycle of interaction. It really looks that way. And in any case, at the very young ages and even later, it doesn't seem like they're enjoying the other. It seems like, you know, because it's very hesitant smiles and then, or even broad smiles, but then they they sober again. It's very, inter- has a very intermittent quality. It's not just, you know, it's so it's intermittent with um, concern. So actually, and actually the children who smiled didn't show less concern. So we really don't think that at this young age, these smiles uh, show um, disregard for the other, callousness or anything like that. We, f- we think that they're maybe trying to initiate a positive cycle of interaction, but it's not antithetical to concern. It doesn't mean your child will be a psychopath at all. Uh, it's a very normative response at this very young age. And uh, sometimes I think even with older children, it could be a level of, discomfort and they're not sure what to do they're anxious so we need to be careful in you know how we uh, interpret these kinds of responses and yeah. i talk about that all the time i mean you think about the awkward laugh when something happens exactly. and people laugh out of it's a stress release reaction just like yeah. crying releases stress laughing releases stress right. as well and so smiling and fear are related there's a relation yeah so we need so yeah sometimes it seems very inappropriate when somebody's you know even like a nervous laugh, but it could be because they're not, you know, it's a, it's a form of dysregulation in some ways. But, uh, but, but again, with the infants, we don't even, it doesn't seem even to be that. It seems more to be a communicative kind of response, but yeah. So could we take that to almost be the precursor to pro-social behavior? Could be, yeah. So, you know, there's a type of pro-social behavior that's labeled uh, empathic cheerfulness. And empathic cheerfulness is when you try to make somebody happy who's upset, you try to make them happy, maybe distract them, make them laugh. And this is obviously a behavior that we don't see in young infants, but we're thinking that it's potentially a precursor to that, but we don't know yet. We need to look at it longitudinally. Yeah. Because it feels like that's what they can do. If you think about, you know, we talked about all their limitations because babies, they can't go get something to make you feel better. They can't come up and hug you. They can't do anything like that, but they can smile for you. And if their history has been that when they smile, we smile back, we respond there. Typically they get such positive reinforcement from those smiles. It's like, I smile, the world is a better place. And so if I keep doing that, I mean, (laughs) that's my Yeah. And actually I can share uh, some, a very interesting, uh, 
like another study, uh, not by us, so not our group, but a little at all, they kind of show something similar to that. It's very cool. So what they show is that they have a different paradigm. So they have essentially three babies come to the lab with, you know, they go and they interact. And then obviously if they're 10 months old, so they, some of them start to fast and, and cry and then they look at what the other infants do. So what they saw is that, yeah, there's also a lot of positive. So when an infant starts to fast, their other infants will respond and usually not with self-distress, but again, with other oriented responses, vocalizations, and, and also positive affect. But the amazing thing is what they found is that these responses actually did help the other infant because it delayed, yeah, the crying. Wow. So it delayed, yeah. So in a way, they say this is already pro-social. They they actually look at these behaviors as being pro-social, but it's a matter of uh, definition. But it's yeah, it's pretty amazing. So they do, uh, these behaviors can help, I guess. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. That is so cool. So, okay, so we have now one study telling us our kids are actually pretty regularly showing empathic behavior, even just moderately at three months of age. So a minor bit, which is increasing up to 18 months, but not a big jump, not like... Not a big jump. But I should note that obviously there are large individual differences and that's normal. And we do see some consistency. So infants who were more empathic at three months were actually also more empathic at 18 months. So, you know, there's also a lot of change. We have another study that looks at trajectories. I can talk about that too, but there's, there's change. So actually when we look at the trajectories, we see that this is not in that study, but we see that some infants um, start hot, pretty high, and they continue to be fairly high in empathy, but actually other infants start low and they increase, and other infants don't increase so much. So it's a very interesting thing, like what predicts these shifts. But yeah, but overall, when you look at the whole group, you have a lot of variability and you have some consistency and also some change. Uh, but I guess one point that I should mention is that because a lot of time people will say, well, how do you know it's actually empathy? So a good kind of um, additional evidence that we have is that this, these very early beha- uh, concerned behaviors, they predict later pro-social behavior at 18 months, which uh, we're very happy <laughs> to, to show that. Yeah. Well. I think that question also speaks to this other paper that we have where you were looking at distress in five to nine month olds. So again, this very narrow window. And this really seems to tease apart whether or not kids are feeling empathy or just responding to a particular stimuli. So can you tell us about Mm -hmm. this study, you know, what you did, because this was a different paradigm as well, Um, Right. right? It was... Yeah. yeah, it was an experimental paradigm. So I actually, my like my heart is in the longitudinal work, which I love the most, but uh, I also kind of did a, this experimental study, which is very cool. So I'll tell you about that too. So what we did is, I don't know if you've ever talked about the Hamlin paradigm and other, no? Okay. No, we so, haven't, but okay. I know. It. Well, okay. I've talked about it to Do people. Families all know about it if they've spoken yeah. to me, but <laughs> Do you want to 
Well, so Kylie Hamlin uh, started at Yale and she looked, she's at UBC now, or I don't know if she's still there. I actually should check, but um, she was there when I was there and my daughter did all these studies. So I actually got to see it firsthand. Yeah. Maddie did a ton of them at the time. So um, I watched it all happen in live. So the idea is you have a little, they started off with a little ball. So it's, you know, this little ball is trying to get up a hill and in one version, you have a triangle helping it up the hill and in another there's the square pushing it down the hill so you have mm -hmm. this idea of helper bringing the ball up or a hinderer bringing it down and infants very young show this preference to the helper um, yeah. that extends and so that was the very basic paradigm and it became I mean Maddie saw puppets doing stuff and throwing <laughs> balls and it, it, I mean it went towards all sorts of different directions in right. which we see regularly very young children really actively showing a preference for right. those that are assisting other people um, but they don't show the preference if it isn't actively showing them helping or hindering. So yeah. if the ball isn't trying to get up and it's just sitting there and say the triangle pushes it up, there's no same effect. It doesn't seem to happen. So there seems to be something about the interaction that is leading children to determine who is helping and who isn't helping. Right. Is that right. for yeah. your purposes? Yeah. yeah. So this paradigm essentially shows that very young infants, so even at three months, at six months, they prefer a pro-social character over an anti-social character and also you know, over a neutral character. So what interested us is actually this, because in those paradigms, they always look at how infants evaluate or prefer the other characters. But when I and my colleagues, when we looked at it, what interested us was that little ball trying to climb that hill and having difficulty and whether uh, the infants actually <laughs> have some concern for that for that character and whether and and does that play into their you know evaluation of the other uh, characters so we essentially devised the paradigm that is built on that builds on that other that Kylie Hamlin's uh, work and on colleagues work and what we did is that infants and they were five to nine years of age they saw two two little videos uh, repeatedly so they saw them several times so in one uh, a character is trying to climb up the hill and another character they meet another character they have a friendly exchange and they go down the mountain and they seem to be harmoniously interacting. So that is a, a condition where we have no harm and no distress. Okay, And then in the harm and distress condition, we have a character trying to go up the mountain, they need another character, and that other character is very aggressive and they shove them violently, pretty violently down the mountain, and then our little character cries. The character essentially is a, is a rectangle with a felt rectangle with googly eyes and a different color each time. So different colors for the different characters. So the character cries. So we have a situation where the infant saw a character being harmed, physically harmed and expresses distress. And we have a situation where they saw another character being having a friendly exchange and is being happy. <laughs> and then we let them choose. So we put the two characters on a tray for them and we asked them to choose. And what we saw is that 82%, over 80% of the infants, they preferred the 
the the character who had been harmed and showed distress. So we interpret this to mean that that you know that they have some concern for that character. Of course, we don't know for sure. I, I, that's why I like the observational, like the longitudinal work more because you can really try to you know code how they respond but here it's more the behavior so they prefer and we infer that that's their preference and of course together with our other work i think there's a basis to to infer that but it was a pretty overwhelming response that they prefer that character and then there's another half to that study which is also quite interesting is that we also showed so we did a different group of infants and this time we didn't show them we just showed the end result just the aspect that the character was shown so there was no other character there was was no shoving there was no interaction it's just that they, they saw the character either cry or being happy and this time they actually did prefer uh, our sad character so this kind of suggests that they're even more sophisticated than maybe <laughs> a lot of people think and that it's not an automatic response they can take aspects of the context into account when they show that preference so that's uh that was pretty interesting yeah which is amazing because that is yeah. the, the contextual piece there is so important because yeah. if it's just seeing someone sad well being hurt by someone else because you're looking at the preference for the victim as opposed to Hamlin's work, exactly. which is looking at the others. Yeah. So we don't know what they actually think about. I can tell you, I mean, my daughter had pretty strong responses to that hinderer. There were times when it was offered yeah. and that hinderer is like getting thrown across the table, like, get away. Yeah. I don't want to see you. You're like, oh. Yeah. Okay. So when you look at that, you think, well, I guess they do it because, but do they actually care about that, that character in the middle? So this is why we focused on this here. It's yeah. true. Because it could just be, I don't want you hurting me. I don't care that you hurt right. them. I just see you as a negative person. And therefore, I don't want a negative person near me. I want a positive exactly. person near me without any concern for what they had done to someone else right. already. Right. So actually, I love that. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it is. So they, do, they do care. <laughs> they do, Yeah, which is great. I mean, it's lovely to know. And I think it reaffirms for so many families, you know, stuff that we see. And, you know, you're a parent too, like you see some of these early and you want to, I have people saying like, no, I really do swear that my kid is doing this. And yeah. they'll hear from professionals. No, no, that's not possible. Your child's not doing that. That's not right. it. And you're like, oh, oh, okay. So I think it's kind of nice to be reaffirmed that no, a lot of the kind of concern or early behaviors you might see can be very reflective of what they are feeling and able to do at such a young age. Right. right. Very so, but also I should mention that when we do those studies, uh, a lot, a very common response that we get from parents is that they don't think their child can do this. And, and sometimes when they see it, they say, wow, but sometimes they actually, it's not so easy to see because you need to kind of have a trained eye and they, it can, it can be easily missed because it can be brief or, it can, you know, so uh, yeah, we have to give credit to those little ones for sure. Those little ones. Yeah. So before yeah. we get to the regulation piece, I want to hear more because you told me now that you've gone up to three years of age. So if you're willing to share the data that we don't know that I know nothing about here, what yeah. is I mean, we know up to 18 months, we have different trajectories, we have some predictive of the pro-social behavior later on. So that early empathy yeah. is predicting later pro-social. But let's add another year and a half. What's going okay. on? 
Okay, so first of all, what we see is that there is some consistency even until 36 months. And so what we did in that trajectory uh, paper is that we looked at the different groups, different trajectories of development of em empathy from empathic concern from three to 18 months. And then we, we looked at how those different groups of children with different trajectories, how that relates to social competence at 36 months. So what we see is that um, there is some uh, influence to the very early beginning. So infants who showed, so like I said, we had three main groups. So the group of infants who from the very beginning are pretty high and they go higher. So those are high empathy uh, group. Uh, we have a rising group. So they start fairly low, but they do increase over these 18 months. And then we have a group of kind of steady low group of uh, infants who start pretty low and they don't really go up that much. Uh, they go up a little, but not a lot. And then what we see is that the group of high empathy of the early empathy infants, they show the most empathy at 36 months as well. So it's, it's a consistent thing. That's not that surprising, but I mean, maybe it is. I don't know. It's a long time, right? It's two and a half years <laughs> more, but anyway. Um, but what we do see is that the rising group they do catch up on a lot of things. So, for example, we look at 36 months, we looked at their ability to understand others' behaviors as social knowledge. And the, the children who started low but increased in empathy over the eight, first 18 months, they do just as well as the high empathy. So they, they catch up really nicely. So again, it's not a deterministic thing. There can be change. And what interests us is why. Uh, another thing that we found is actually that group of the rising kids, uh, they're actually very good at their, they have positive peer interactions at the at daycare. So their teachers filled out questionnaire and they are very, you know, they're loved by peers even more like they're the highest group so really? yeah it's yeah so not significantly more than the high high empathy ones but you know that when you look at the numbers so but they catch up on a lot of things and so even if they're not you know maybe like those very the kids who show it highly very early maybe there's some genetic component there and it serves them later, but there can also be a different kind of uh, trajectory of development and those kids do equally well and, you know, sometimes even better or slightly less than other things, but, but they do catch up. And the group of kids who are low, they do show the lowest um, okay. um, social competence. So, and it's very interesting to try to understand you know, why, what is happening. It's a very large group. So I wouldn't say it's, you know, it's not psychopathology, but it's a risk. So it's interesting to see in future work uh, what what predicts that and also how we can help them. Maybe it's a temperamental thing. Maybe it's a motivational thing. Like there are different, maybe it's a parenting. I mean, we, this, but it's a combination of <laughs> all of the above, uh, but it'll be interesting yeah. Yeah, to look into oh, that. Oh my goodness. It is fascinating yeah. when you see that logo, it just, you can't help but feel like there's something biological at play there, whether it's, you know, yeah. again, yeah. maybe they get overstimulated. Like, well, this brings us to the the responsiveness question, or pardon oh, me, the regulation yeah. question right. is, you know, are they the kids that maybe get over 
over distress and therefore that they become more self. I don't know, but what is in general, like we do need to talk about this role of regulation because it's so important to the question of empathy. That's a good point, by the way, and this paper is now under review, but I guess when it comes back, we need to look at whether they show more distress, which I don't know. It's an interesting point. Yeah, I'll put a pin in that. A little asterisk uh, there to go back and wait a second, what did they do? But I do wonder, because when you see some of that low empathy, if it has regularly led to, you know, I, I just think of it this way, just a little, this is me brainstorming hypothesis as we sit here chatting. You have a kid who starts out highly distressed and their learning mechanism, and we'll talk about parenting, maybe there isn't a regulatory capacity from a parent. They're not regulating that distress as well as they need to, or maybe they just temperamentally really overreact all the time. That, I would feel, could lead them towards a pattern of behavior where they avoid looking at a lot of other people where that becomes so overwhelming all the time that that avoidance is kind of becomes in place so that they not only don't show it later on, but that's really dictated by a sense of avoidance and distress that's happened early on. That's, yeah. And now Uh, how parenting plays into that, how anything else, I don't know. But I could see that being one of probably a billion plausible pathways right. that might explain why you see such a a regular yeah, trajectory I, there. I, I agree. I mean, we do see, with respect to avoidance, we do see a lot of that behavior, and that's actually something that we code for. And in, young in, in the young infants or even older, what you would see is essentially that they withdraw, they shift their gaze, they don't want to look at the distressed other. Uh, and it's a way of regulating themselves, actually. So some of them are able to come back and others can't. So, I mean, I think that there's a lot of interesting things that we haven't explored yet with that data. For example, those who are able to shift back, what does that mean versus those who can't? But we haven't done that, like looking looking at it that way yet. And in a way, you know, a child can be low in empathy for different reasons. So they can be low because they're just disinterested, they're not aroused at all, or they can be low because they become over-aroused. And, you know, one thing I would like to do with this data in the future is to draw these distinctions because we, in the analysis that we usually do, we don't, right? We just look at their whether they're high, you know, their level of empathic concern, but not why they're low. So yeah. I think this would kind of would be a good way for future, for the future. Um, to look and at. you really see that kind of in adult literature on empathy between that distinction between the more psychopathic type tendencies, the lack of any concern versus those who do not show pro-social behavior, everything because their personal distress is so high that they opt out of the situation altogether. And therefore you can have two behavioral responses that look the same from two incredibly different starting points as to why they don't care. So in terms of this regulation piece, so how do you see regulation? What is the role of regulation? And in particular, the role of parents helping regulation Mm -hmm. in this development of empathy over time? Okay. So uh, like we said before, to be able to show empathic concern, you have to have it, 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 
it needs you need to regulate the arousal. So regulation definitely. So this is also part of our. I mean, I don't think it's such a huge point, but for some reason, people before our work, people acknowledge that regulation is important for empathy in children and adults, but they just didn't seem to think it, it applies to infants. And all we said is, yeah, but infants also need to regulate. <laughs> so they, it's not when they cry because another is crying. It's not because they think that it's them who are hurt. It's because they become dysregulated, you know, and, yeah. and for an infant. So this is, it, I mean, when you think about it, it's not a huge, you know, step, but yeah, it's important to acknowledge that infants also need to be, to regulate. Um, there's actually, we don't, we haven't, I, I will tell you about the parenting uh, findings that we have, and they do, you can kind of look, uh, infer about regulation from that, but it's not a direct look at that, but actually work by colleagues does uh, show something more pertinent to that. And I think in their study, um, it's Abramson et al., and they showed um, 2020, and, and they showed that um, the infants who showed more self-distress at a younger age, so at nine months, when they also had better regulation, it did predict later empathic concerns. So I think this kind of goes more directly to the question that you were asking, that if you have that, that having that regular, regulatory ability is important for predicting better empathy. And in our work, it's just that it kind of is a given that you have to be able to regulate to actually show it, but we don't necessarily always separate regulate regulatory ability. And so with the parents, were you saying with that first study there that it was yeah. the parents regulating, the more the parents regulated okay. the infant, they did better or that the more they were okay. able to regulate? Sorry. So, so yeah, yeah, yeah. So what we see with the with the parenting, it's so it's something that is being written up now. And I think it's a beautiful study. As you'll see, it's very, if you remember my PhD, which you don't have to. I do. I do. Because I did a lot of coding on that one. So. <laughs> So what we did for the parenting is that we, it's, it's the same longitudinal sample. So from three months to 18 months in this case, we didn't use the 36. But what we did is we looked at the parents, the mothers, we had also filmed the, um, the mother and child interacting. Uh, free play and also change of clothes, which by the way, when change of clothes also elicits a, a lot of sometimes distress. And so it's an opportunity to look at that. So basically at three and six months, we did the coding of parenting and we looked at how much the, the mother responded sensitively to the child's distress. And sometimes it's very mild distress and it's just a few seconds here and there, but interestingly it did predict, and as I'll tell you in a second. So we looked at um, uh, responsiveness to distress, which you could argue, you know, helps the infant regulate uh, their distress. <laughs> and we also looked at uh, moments of shared positive affect with the infant. So whether, you know, there are moments that there's mutual positive affect that they're sharing. We also looked at ORTH, which is just generally how much positive affect the mother is showing. So what we found is that responsiveness to distress at three months and also at six months, it predicted how much empathic concern the infant showed later over and above their early level of empathy. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's pretty incredible, I think. So at three months, how much empathic concern the infants, the, um, sorry, sorry, at three months, how much um, uh, the mother responded sensitively to the child's distress, which was just, just a few minutes, you know, of uh, interaction. It predicted uh, to the infant's empathic concern at six months and at 12 months. And at six months, how much the mother showed um, responsiveness to distress predicted to 18 months 
uh, showing empathic concern. Okay, and, and what's interesting is that other aspects of parenting, so shared positive affect or warmth, didn't predict the infant's ability to have concern, empathic concern for the other's distress. So it's a specific parenting influence. And probably a lot has a lot to do with ability to regulate, maybe also modeling. I mean, we don't know exactly the mechanisms, but it could be various things, but uh, it's a specific effect. And what we also see is that in this study, we also included the infants, uh, we didn't really talk about it before, but uh, empathy for others' positive emotions. So we also, in addition to looking at empathic concern, we also see how much the infant can participate in somebody else's positive emotions. So this is empathic happiness or positive empathy or however you want to call it. But, uh, and by the way, it's not, this is something I'm working on it now, I'm working on now, but it's not really strongly linked to, the two kinds of empathy are not that, usually they're not even correlated and when they are it's very low so what we see is that the parent the mother's ability to create moments of shared positive affect at three months and at six months actually predicted that empathic ability predicted the ability to participate in others joy empathic happiness and again uh responsiveness responsiveness to distress did not predict that. So we do see, and that's why I told you about my PhD, it has a chair so much with it, because in that work, I differentiated responsiveness to distress from warmth. So I was just about to say, this is tinging all the bells, because I talk about that study a lot with families, because the problem has always been, it was an older sample. So can we bring it back down? But Mayanne, years ago, disentangled this piece, saying that no, this responsiveness to distress is crucial to our later empathy. At the time, it was just empathy, but we were thinking about the distress empathy, not the positive empathy, whereas this warmth had a much greater link to these more positive emotion regulation and and shared stuff. But this was in like five to eight year olds. So it was actually even, yeah. Is it even older? Six to eight, yeah. Six to eight, pardon me. Six to eight. I'm just going to throw an extra year in there. (laughs) But I always was fascinated to think what would go back down because one of the things that, you know, I hear a lot is, and it's a, a modern mainstay for parents is that warmth has become almost that key piece. People feel that warmth is more dominant than responsiveness to distress. And I keep trying to say, no, 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 it's different. It's, no. you know, you want them yeah. both, but they're not serving the same function in our parenting. Right. <laughs> right. So know, I have yeah. something very interesting on that, actually. Uh, sorry, I cut you off, though. No, so, no, I want to hear. Bring it on. Okay. So yeah, so it's a very, so, but just before then, uh, you're right. I mean, essentially we're showing, I mean, it's not published yet, but I think it's an ama- it's going to be an amazing paper that is currently being written up by my, by my PhD student, but um, we're showing the same pattern for younger infants, but we're showing this now longitudinally and, you know, it's all behavioral. It's like behavioral observation. It's really amazing. But anyway, the interesting thing about warmth is that we also looked at warmth. Warmth is just how much the mother exudes that positive affect, and it, it's not necessarily reciprocal. So shared positive affect is different from warmth because shared positive affect is mutual. And that predicted uh, the ability to share in other people's joy or empathic happiness. But actually warmth did it. So warmth didn't predict, yeah. Because warmth, if you think about it, you could be warm, but maybe the child is not even into it right now. They're doing something else. Warmth is a, is a more general thing. And initially, 
but we did find something interesting about that it does predict. So I'll tell you about that. But it doesn't predict directly to the child's behavior. So it's responsiveness to distress predicts empathic concern and um, shared positive affect predicts empathic happiness. But we found something interesting about warmth is that earlier warmth actually predicted these positive parenting behaviors later on so which i actually found to be pretty amazing so the mother mothers who were warmer which to me suggests that they enjoy the child they enjoy their parenting role uh it made them actually more responsive to the child's distress at six months so when they showed this at three months it made them more sensitive to the child's distress at six months and also more able to create moments of shared positive affect. So in many ways, maybe warmth is for the parent. It's not directly for the child, but it does motivate the parent and it gives the parent that energy to invest in their parenting. And But that's, I mean, I think I love that part of that study, but I, I think it's so interesting. So now uh, I have to ask you a question because yeah, yeah. this triggered this, I have like my brain's exploded. <laughs> I'm not sure what to say here. Um, what about what about shifts in warmth? Do shifts in warmth predict different parenting? So if someone doesn't start out warm at three months, but say develops warmth later, does that then predict their parenting even later? Or what if they, and is this like, what's their self-reported warmth versus what you're seeing behaviorally? Okay, so first, my first answer is is I don't know yet, but those are very interesting things to look at. But if you want just my intuition or just from what I've seen in our work, is that I do expect that shifts can make a difference. So I think, in in my view of development, it's not a deterministic process. Okay, it's yeah, if you have a good early start, it helps. <laughs> But it doesn't end there. And also it doesn't guarantee that, okay, now you can just, you know, <laughs> kind of uh, <laughs> half-ass it. I don't know if I'm allowed to say it. You're allowed to say that, don't worry. <laughs> so, and, and everything will be fine because everything was so great initially. No, it doesn't work that way. So what we see from, from the work of, you know, in the field of child development is that it needs to be, you know, there's room for change, but also, um, you know, for better and worse. So if you change, if things deteriorate, it will have can have an effect, even if it started off really greatly, and and vice versa. And so there's room for change. So I would expect that if there's increase in warmth, which to me suggests that the parent was able for whatever reason to now maybe they couldn't do it before, but now they're enjoying that relationship more, they can invest in it more, that it would predict positive um results or at least better parenting which then can lead to good results in the, in the child so but that's something that i'll be interested in looking at and i can tell you about it uh, next time but uh, yeah i want to hear about all of that because <laughs> i still have so many more questions i'm going to pepper you with after this on that one just so that you can include it all and do a little mini study just for me of course uh, yeah. <laughs> but so then the second bit what about um how the parent perceives their warmth versus hmm. what is, because we know self-report is yeah, a yeah. difficult <laughs> one to navigate. Because um, And I go this, let me just explain where I'm coming from. I hear a lot of families talk about making changes where, oh, I'm a much better parent now. And you sometimes look and go, 
I'm not sure. Maybe you feel like a better parent, but I'm not seeing a shift in behavior that's accompanying this. Yeah. So I always ask, what is happening there? What What's, you know, are you yeah. really better because you think you're better? Or are we deluding ourselves in saying, no, 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 no. Like this works for me. It's great. I'm better now. <laughs> but really nothing's actually changed. Okay, so I actually, I have some data on that, not for warmth, but for responsiveness to the stress. So it's just kind of, it's a, it's a similar issue. So uh, what we also, in addition to observations, at six months, we also did an interview with the mothers and we asked them a lot of questions about responding to the child's distress when they're sick, when they're, you know, going to sleep, when they're all kinds of, when in separation. And from that, we also, um, we developed a coding system and we uh, we assessed how much the mother showed in the way she talked about in her representations or her you know cognitive assessment of, of her parenting how much she was responsive to the child's distress and it does not behave the same way as the parenting as that sorry as the observation of parenting uh, and I mean, it's something that we're still working on, but interestingly, it showed some kind of a um, uh, curvilinear relationship. Okay. So the infants seem to be faring better in the middle range of that, the mother being, you know, uh, sensitive in how she talked about their responsiveness to distress. And if she was very dismissive, you know, it's not important, or, you know, they learn or whatever, then they didn't fare so well. But also, if she was, super, super, um, you know, seemed to be super mindful of it and very, it also didn't, they didn't fare as well, which is fascinating. And I don't know exactly why it, and we need to look at it, but I can tell you one very interesting thing. It's, it's a little cruel, but uh, when we, when we interviewed them, we also, uh, the, the baby was there. Okay. So it was actually on video and uh, the baby sometimes was, you know, fussing, and so you can definitely see a split, and I understand why. I mean, it's a human thing, but the baby would, she would talk about how she's sensitive to their crying. Meantime, they're, you know, <laughs> and so there's, there's a divide. It's not, this is, talking about it is very important, but it's not necessarily, it's going to capture exactly the same thing as, as, as what you actually do. But, you know, I do think, you know, being able to reflect is important, but it's, you know, we, you also have to, it, yeah, yeah. Because it makes we know me wonder, as human beings, we can delude ourselves. We can do, you know, exactly, stories right? and, yeah. I was wondering but at the same if, time, uh, I, you know, I don't make parents feel uncomfortable or like could question themselves. It's fine. It's good to think about these things, but also, you know, when you're in the moment, it's not always going to work the same as when you're thinking about it, not in the moment. Right. So just be yeah. conscious of that. I, I was, it makes me think about the, um, the level of honesty in our reflections of ourselves. So I would be curious yeah. about, you know, that high and low, I mean, the low may be very honest because they're dismissive and acknowledging yeah. <laughs> they're dismissive. So therefore, okay. Um, but at that high level, it's, does it become a detriment because it's actually, we can't actually be that sensitive so therefore there's a level of of right struggle right. going on <clears throat> or right. is it intrusiveness that's happening at that point is right. 
you know, but uh, the fact that you're seeing on camera that they're talking about it and not doing it would belie the intrusiveness element and be part of the, no, in my mind, I am, I do all of this. I have it down. I've got my checklist. I do all of this. I do that. But yet they're still lacking that yeah. awareness in the moment. Yeah. It could also be uh, their own, you know, their own self-distress when it happens could also maybe factor into that because you need, you know, if you become self-distressed, the infant is not feeling, doesn't feel safe. And maybe those people are also prone to be very reflective, but I don't, I mean, we don't know yet. We didn't expect this. It was very interesting, but uh, we still need to work on it a little, but we do see curvilinear, yeah, with the infant's empathy and self-distress and yeah, it's interesting. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That's fascinating. It's now I'm going to question everything I ever say about how I respond to my children. How no. do you respond? I don't know. I just, I do. I don't know. I'm not sure. Um, no, I think that's pretty good. I'm not going to worry too much about it. No, I'm sure. <laughs> so I have kept you so long. There was another paper we were going to get to of time. It just means right. I have to have you back. So okay. that's just, I mean, we'll have to have you back to talk about gender differences in empathy or sex differences rather, I should say. Um, and to talk about this parenting work once you disentangle this whole piece to get it on. So Mayan has kindly come on while on vacation. So I thought to bring it back to the beach because that's just cruel and unusual punishment to finally be able to go away and be stuck talking to me. So the final thing though that I have to ask is what do you think in terms of the development of empathy? what is the one take-home message you can give to parents who are okay. going to worry about it and listen to all this and start looking at every single baby cue that they have and wondering how to read their baby's <laughs> empathy at three months? Right. <laughs> um, so I guess I would say that, you know, inf we need to give credit to young infants. They, they can feel maybe more than we assume and that they you know they have that capacity it's a human capacity and and to nurture it we need to respond to their yeah, to their distress and other needs uh and and trust that yeah it's it's not something that um we you know that only a few infants occasionally show it's it, it is a human it is a human behavior and most infants show something uh yeah so appreciate your th that magic that <laughs> you're raising it's pretty amazing when we think about it oh it really is it is so good thank you so much so i'm gonna have um, the link to your website for your right, lab right. website and everything. Is there anywhere else people find you outside of your, your lab work there? Um, you're very welcome to email me. There's like all the contact is there. Um, yeah, but that, no, that's many, you know, I, I do research that's what i know how to do she's not the social media type don't worry folks. <laughs> no, no, i'm not <laughs> but uh, thank you for opening my eyes to to the possibilities and yeah i really really enjoyed it tracy and oh, i always enjoy talking you. to you <laughs> i know it's so lovely thank you so much and i'm not kidding about the next time so i'll bug you next time sure. um we'll set it up now um <laughs> and get that on the book well, no i'm gonna let you go to the beach first but thank you so be much for being too. here um for sure. All of the links will be check out the show notes if you're looking for any of the two papers we were talking about, as well as my Anne's lab more generally. And if you have any questions about any of it, as you know, she said, you can contact her uh, directly. And uh, that is it for today. Thank you so much for listening. That's it for this week. Hopefully you enjoyed our conversation and may have a bit more awe for those babies and what they're capable of. 
Join me next week as we look at the dyslexic brain, specifically how children with dyslexia react emotionally to situations and events. Joining me are Drs. Virginia Sturm and Krista Watson, co-authors on a new study looking at this very question. For anyone who knows a dyslexic child or is working with one, this will be a must-listen. In the meantime, happy parenting.